The reading is from Joshua chapter 10, um, beginning at verse 1. Now Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, Stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nations avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky, and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. The reading continues on over the page in Joshua chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. Here is a list of the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Harlech, which rises towards Seir. Joshua gave their lands as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions. The lands included the hill country, the western foothills, the Araba, the mountain slopes, the wilderness, and the Negev. These were the lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These were the kings. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, near Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. 
the king of Lachish, one, the king of Eglon, one, the king of Gezer, one, the king of Debir, one, the king of Geder, one, the king of Hormah, one, the king of Arad, one, the king of Libna, one, the king of Adullam, one, the king of Makeda, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, the king of Aphek, one, the king of Lasheron, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shimron Meron, one, the king of Akshaf, one, the king of Tarnak, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kedesh, one, the king of Jokniem in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Naphoth Dor, one, the king of Goyim in Gilgal, one, the king of Terzar, one, 31 kings in all. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for gathering us together this evening. We praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you for the wonderful things we've already sung about, that you are our cornerstone. You are the one on whom we build our life and our hope. And Father, we pray that now that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and wills to act upon what you are saying to us. Amen. Well, this evening we come to the end of our little uh, sermon series in Joshua. We're pausing in Joshua. We're going to start something else next week and then we will come back to Joshua sometime in the autumn. We come to the end, really, of the first half of the book of Joshua. They've entered the land and now in these verses, or these chapters rather, chapters 10 to 12, this is the, the sort of consummation, if you like. This is... This is God's people taking the land. And what God wants to impress upon them is the same as what he wants to impress upon us. That he wins. And to be on his side is to be on the winning side. Because that's the thing, isn't it? If you, if you know who wins, you know to, to whom to pledge your allegiance, don't you? Whether it's uh, Trump or Clinton, whether, whether it's May or Gove, whether it's Mourinho or Guardiola. If, if you know who wins, you know to whom to pledge your allegiance. I suppose more prosaically, uh, if you if you knew over the next sort of little while or ever how long which which companies were going to win on the stock exchange, you'd you'd know where to invest your money, wouldn't you? If you know who wins, you know to whom to pledge your allegiance. You know where to invest your resources. You know where to invest your hope. If you know who wins, then you know that your your labour won't be in vain, even when the, the going seems to be tough. And those sort of issues, uh, they're, they're at play in, in, the, in the big decisions, like who's going to be president or prime minister, who's going to win the premiership. Those, those things are at play in those big decisions, but of course they're, they're also at play in, in the 
biggest question or the biggest decision of all, really. That is, that is to say, what, what ism or what ology accurately describes reality? Because we're thinking people. We're people who have resources to invest. We're people who want to live our lives with vision, with identity, with purpose. And we, we need to know who, who wins, if you like. Because if, if the atheists are right, if there is no afterlife, if there is no judgment day, well, well of course, we'd be absolute fools to pledge our allegiance to a fictitious God of the Bible and perhaps deny ourselves a, a pleasure or a happiness in this life. Of course we would be. If the, the atheist's close ally, the materialist, wins, as it were, well then, all that matters is stuff, isn't it? If materialism is the, is the true view of reality, reality, then all that matters is stuff, experiences, toys, trinkets, and all that matters really is earning enough money to make sure we can enjoy as many of those as possible. Or perhaps do the jihadists win? Is ultimate reality a deity called Allah? Well, if, if that is true, then, then please, Christian in Syria, don't, don't be so foolish as to get yourself martyred for the name of Jesus. Spare yourself. Or is your old, slightly liberal school chaplain right is god just a kind of cuddly grandfather figure dispersing worthy's original sweets to you of course the last thing he'd want to do goodness me is step on your toes and actually interfere in your life of course not and beware of those dodgy evangelicals they take him far too seriously what matters of course is your ambitions and so invest yourself in bringing those ambitions to fruition It really matters, really matters, knowing who wins. See, in these, all these victories, that, that big long list that Johnny read out, that, that comprehensive list of victories, that is included in the Bible because God wanted to impress upon his people what he wants to impress upon us. That to be on his side is to be on the winning side. Because God knew in the, in the days and months and years after these battles, his people would be tempted to, when, well, people, when the going got tough, his people would be tempted to, to pledge their allegiance to other people, to pledge their allegiance to other small g-gods. They needed to remember what we needed to remember, that to be on the Lord's side is to be on the winning side. And God, God loves us far too much than to let us spend our time and our energy pledging our allegiance to, to anyone other than him, the one who wins. And we're going we're gonna to see how these chapters lead us to that conclusion. Follow with me, will you? Uh, the points are on the back of your notice sheets, I think. Well, they'll certainly appear behind me.
As we come to understand that to be on the Lord's side is to be on the winning side, the first thing we need to, need to take stock of is the point from verses 1 to 5 in chapter 10. The nations gather to wage war. Nations gather to wage war. So do you remember, I don't know if you do, a long time ago, last Sunday, do you remember how last week's passage started? There were, there were five kings of the Canaanite region, uh, and they gathered to wage war against Joshua and his people. And they united because they'd seen what Israel under Joshua had done first to Jericho and then to Ai. And then also last week, if you remember, we saw as a result of that this group called the Gibeonites. They were, they were deceptive, but God was gracious to them. And, they, and what they did is tricked the Israelites into making an alliance with the Israelites. But that just stirs up more opposition which is where today's passage starts. So have a look, have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. And so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to all of those chaps. Verse 4, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. We'll see how the, the battle plays out. Uh, as the verses go on in our next points. But, but just notice this pattern. Notice the pattern. This, these coalitions against God's people. That's how chapter 9 started last week. That's how chapter 10 starts this week. A, a coalition against the Gibeonites, the allies of Israel. Uh, and then if you can bear a few more names and places, just flick over and we'll look at the beginning of chapter 11 very quickly. Just see this pattern. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshva, oh, I think, and to the northern kings who are in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in the Naphoth, door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mitzpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Look, obviously, all all the names and places uh, are terribly confusing, but the main point is clear, isn't it? The nations gather to wage war against God's people. The people face consistent, united opposition. And if you remember last week, we said, yeah, obviously from one sense, from a political, military sense, it makes perfect sense, but there's far more going on here than political or military considerations. See, hundreds of years ago, God made four promises to Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish nation. God said, firstly to Abraham, I'll make you into a great people. Secondly, that he would settle that people in what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, where we are at the moment. Thirdly, that he would bless Abraham and the people who came from him. And fourthly, 
that in turn, God's people would be a blessing to the wider world and that ultimately all that would be lost at the fall would be restored. In other words, God announced his plan of salvation to Abraham. God announced a plan of salvation, a plan that would ultimately, of course, find its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all through the Bible, that plan of salvation is opposed. You see it in the way Pharaoh opposes the Israelites in Egypt. You see it here. You see it in the, in the battles that King David and the later kings of uh, Israel will have to battle. You see it in the final act of the drama in the book of Revelation when all the nations of the world gather to battle against God. And of course we see that alliance against God's plan of salvation supremely in the alliance that thought it could terminate that plan of salvation by having Jesus killed. Do you remember that line in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel? When Jesus is on trial, they've sentenced him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before, they had been enemies. There in the, in the death of Jesus, the, this alliance of religious Jews and the pagan Roman Empire conspiring, so they thought, to thwart God's plan of salvation. Of course, though, ultimately, God's plan of salvation cannot be thwarted. But it will be the case often that the, that the strength and the breadth of that opposition towards God's plan of salvation may just, may just take us by surprise if we don't know what to expect. These alliances in Joshua teach us that there will always be those who set themselves against God's saviour and, by extension, us, his people. Whether that's both poles of the political spectrum, eroding Christian values, marginalising religious speech in the public square, whether it's followers of Christ being silenced by fundamentalist atheists, or extremist monotheists, or whether it's colleagues or family whose only point of agreement seems to be uniting to mock your faith. The nations gather to wage war, and, and we shouldn't be surprised when, when we see that opposition towards God's plan of salvation in our day. Because if we are surprised by that opposition, well, we may just capitulate to it. We may think we're doing something wrong. If we're surprised by the, the breadth of that opposition, we may just be tempted into thinking that some other ism or some other ology is the correct, the right explanation of reality. We may succumb to the temptation to kind of just step out of the line of fire by, by subtly stepping away from God's plan of salvation. We may pledge our allegiance to someone or something other than Jesus. 
The nations gather to wage war, and we mustn't be surprised. But we must remember our second point as we carry on, verses 6 to 15. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord fights for his people. So verse 6, the Lord, uh, the Gibeonites send word to Joshua, come help us, you signed this treaty with us even though we tricked you, come and defend us. And so verse 7, verse 7, Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. So here, here is Joshua and the people of Israel coming to, coming to fight this, this coalition. But actually, these verses make it very clear that it is not fighting men who are going to carry the day for God's people. It is the Lord. The Lord is the one who acts decisively in these verses. I don't know if you noticed that. We'll have to whiz through very quickly, but have a look at verse 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. God is fighting for his people. And then Joshua prays for the sun to stand still in the sky, presumably to to lengthen the day so that the victory can be comprehensive. God fights for his people. Now look, I guess you should say something about that. Let's just pause here. How How do we take this description of the sun standing still in the sky? Some commentators, of course, will want to insist that it's speaking metaphorically, of course, uh, of course, that couldn't happen. Uh, they'll insist on that because they'll say the sort of natural laws of time, space, and gravity can't just be suspended like that. Personally, I'm just I'm happy to accept that it happened, as it says here. And that's because in the Christian view of reality, universal laws like gravity exist and are sustained minute by minute. By God. The true Christian loves, of course, the empirical scientific method. We've got many scientists amongst us tonight. But the Christian scientist recognizes that, that those universal laws of the universe are dependent upon God, not the other way around. God keeps them consistent, and God is able to suspend them when he chooses. Now, look, that's just a little aside. Obviously, that's part of the de- bigger debate. Uh, about science and Christianity, do come and chat to me more afterwards if you'd like to engage more on that topic. But here, look, the key, the key thing for us is verse 14. This is, this is the key interpretation of the fact that the sun stands still. Have a look, chap, verse 14 of chapter 10. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being And here it is, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. See, as Israel entered and took possession of the promised land, they needed to remember that the Lord was fighting for them. And as they looked back on their history in the years to come, they needed to remember the Lord was fighting for them. And that truth actually is underlined for us twice more in chapter 10. Look over to verse 25, just over the column. Joshua said to his people, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. And then flick over, verse 41. 
chapter 10. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Crescento Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And Israel needed to know that because, well, because when things would get tough later on, if they forgot that, they would succumb to the temptation to pledge their allegiance to some other small g-god, some other ism, some other ology. And of course, as we stand as beneficiaries in that same line, that same stream of God's plan of salvation, this is what we need to know. The Lord fights for his people. Because the fulfillment of the Lord's plan of salvation will be when people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue enter the glorious inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day, the human opposition we face will often be broad, it will often be acute. We we don't fight back, we turn the other cheek. Until that day when we walk into our glorious inheritance, the spiritual opposition, as we reflected on last week, will be that terrifying combination of sin and Satan. But the Lord fights for his people. The battle is his. See, look, just have a, keep, keep a finger in um, page 227. But flick on with me, will you, to Ephesians chapter 1. That's on page 1173. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. This is a description of how the Lord is, is fighting for his people even now. Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And here it is. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That is to say, the power that God is exerting for your good, if you're a Christian, is the same as the mighty power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That is to say, God is fighting for us, his people, for you to bring you into his glorious inheritance with the same inexpressible, incomparable power that he expended when he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. The Lord fights for his people. Now look, of course, it doesn't always feel like that. I dare say tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off and you're kind of stumbling for it and you wish it was Saturday morning again. It won't feel like that then. It won't feel like that when the battle with sin is at its most discouraging and draining. But this is the truth. The Lord fights for his people. 
Keep trusting. Keep your allegiance to him. Because one day, the battle will be over. And that's our final point. The victory is comprehensive. The victory is comprehensive. And that's, and that's why I put Johnny through the pain of reading out that long list, those 31, those 31 kings. It was supposed to feel a little bit, oh, this is, this is a little bit superfluous, this is a little bit weird. But that is entirely the point. 31 kings, the victory is comprehensive. And look, it's, Euro, it's Euros at the moment. We should be in this frame of mind. Verse 9 of chapter 12. The king of Jericho, 1-0. The king of Ai, 1-0. The king of Libna, 1-0. The king of Goyim, 1-0. 1-0 to the, to the Lord. 1-0 to the Lord. See, as the Israelites reflect back on this list, they are meant to realize how comprehensive the Lord's victory under Joshua was. To be on the Lord's side is to be on the safe side. To be on the Lord's side is to be on the winning side. To pledge your allegiance to him is to pledge your allegiance to the one who is victorious. And if that logic was necessary for the Israelites to, to, to keep faithful to the Lord, how much more uh, is it true for us Jesus' gospel has been spreading over this planet for two millennia now. And that spread will never stop. His death on the cross means that he has won forgiveness for his children from the power and the penalty of sin. His resurrection proves that he is the one who has conquered death and Satan and who reigns on high. The passage in, don't, don't turn back to it, but the passage in Ephesians continues by telling us how Christ is now seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And one day soon, Jesus' complete victory will be seen and recognized by all. And it's not, it's not the victory of a tyrant, the victory of an oppressor. It is the victory of the Prince of Peace, the one who will establish his kingdom of perfect righteousness and holiness and peace and justice and love forever. And so I wonder if by faith you can already hear the chanting on the heavenly terraces. One nil to the risen Lord. No matter what the opposition is, no matter who or what has set themselves up against the Lord, no matter who or what has tried to lure his people away from him, one nil to the risen Lord. Atheism, one nil to the risen Lord. Secularism, one nil to the risen Lord. Capitalism, materialism, consumerism, one nil to the risen Lord. Other gods, one nil to the risen Lord. Satan, sin, one nil to the risen Lord. That will be the full-time score of eternity. Forever. No rematch, no replays, no return fixture next season. The full-time score, one nil to the risen Lord. 
when you know who wins, you know who to pledge your allegiance to, even if it is tough at the moment. And that means the person whose service at church is costly because of their loyalty to Jesus invests wisely. The person who commits themselves to celibacy outside of Christian marriage because of their allegiance to the Lord Jesus is on the right side of reality. The person who makes a radical career move because of their commitment to preach the gospel is no fool. The family who are not able to give their kids all the opportunities their peers do because they've made a radical decision to go to church in a difficult part of the country. They have backed the winning side. Their sacrifices will not be in vain. The Lord wins. Let's pledge all that we have to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can look back on the victories of Joshua, yes, and even more so of the victories your son won on the cross and in his resurrection. And Father, we pray that you will keep in our mind's eyes that glorious final day when we will know for certain that victory is his. Father, we pray that you will help us to be men and women who are resolutely sure that to be on your side is to be on the winning side. And Father, we pray that we will therefore be men and women who invest all that we have and all that we are in playing our part in your glorious salvation plan. Amen.